Well, good morning. Certainly is good to greet you on this beautiful Lord's Day. And some of you are saying, did you look out the window? And the answer is yes. Because this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will be what? Glad and rejoice in it. We've had that opportunity to do that in song and worship in song. And now we have the opportunity of uh, worshiping the Lord by hearing what he has to say to us from his word. Not from the words of men, but from the words of God. And I trust that you will understand that the things that are shared are shared from the word of God. And if it's the word of God, then we need to give attention to it because if we do not give attention to it, we're courting disaster in our lives. And we see that today as we look into the word of God. We see the man Solomon, and uh, he had some issues, didn't he? And uh, we're going to look at some of those. But uh, it's interesting, he started out very, very well. But he ended up kind of poorly. The thing I appreciate so much about Scripture is that it is totally honest with us not hiding reality. It lets us see the characters of Scripture as they are, not as we wish they would be. And uh, that's a great encouragement because I think of myself and I'm thankful that God can take wrecks and he can redo them. And we want to think about that this morning. Before we do, let's uh, just ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher, lead us into truth, and listen to what he has to say to us. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that Jesus Christ said that he is the truth. And we're asking today that we would see Christ, even as we look at this Old Testament character, and even as we understand, Lord, that someone started off in his life very, very well, but, Lord, had some issues. And some of us have the same issues. And we need to be careful as to how we respond to the world in which we live. So guide and direct our thinking. May the Spirit of God really instill in our hearts how we ought to respond to what we hear today. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, you do have uh, sermon notes in your bulletin today, or those that are at home, you can uh, get a copy of that by checking somewhere, and uh, it'll tell you. I have no idea. This is, this is called technology. I'm, I'm not even sure which way this button goes, but, uh, but uh, you, you can follow along. And it would be helpful because we're going to be looking at some things very quickly because we're going to go through 11 chapters, and we're going to do it very, very briefly, and so it will help you to follow along. Since uh, the Tokyo Summer Olympics was the least watched Olympics in history, you probably missed a rather spectacular event. At least it was spectacular to me. There was a man who was racing there, and his name was Isaiah Jewett. He was running in the men's 800-meter race, and he was coming into this Olympics uh, in a rather prestigious position. At this particular time, he was the star runner for USC. He held many, many career wins, both high school and all the way through college. Uh, he had won the Pac-12 800-meter uh, title. He was the indoor champion for the 800-meter. 
He was an All-American. He came to the Olympics having, the Olympics having finished uh, second at the Olympic trials, and uh, he was the reigning NCAA champion. What a, an astounding credentials. And he was uh, now in the semifinals in the Olympic races, and he had gotten off to a very, very good start. Wrong way. So I told you I didn't know which way this went. That's, this is really going backwards. There, there we go. He'd gotten off to a very, very good start. As a matter of fact, he was exactly where he wanted to be in the race. He was in fourth position. And that's the way he liked to race. He liked to race from that position that when the final bell went off, that he could just explode ahead. And so that's what he did. He started that, the bell rang on the, the fourth lap, and uh, he was in fourth place, and he was in that 200-meter position. And he said, and I quote, I was exactly where I wanted to be in my race. I was racing very well. I was super happy about that. But all of a sudden, he fell. Well, he, he actually got tripped up. We find out that what happened was that as he was running, uh, with even all of the storied achievements he had, it didn't stop a man from Botswana. His name was Amos to run into him, to clip him, and both of them fell, and they fell hard on the track. There was no finishing that race. He could not win. As a matter of fact, all he could do was help the man up that had tripped him up. You know, what an amazing thing. You see, all of these storied past achievements did not stop the fall. See, sometimes we think our history is going to carry us. And sometimes I think our history simply deceives us because we assume something that is not reality. That, that's so much like life, isn't it, this race? You know, I, I think of, uh, you know, many, many times, you think of people who have, who have started well and, and uh, somehow they get tripped up and they finish poorly. Think about the person who is that, that ideal couple and their, their, their marriage is just perfect. And that's what everybody says. And then all of a sudden, there comes a great fall. Or think about leaders who have tremendous capacity to lead. As a matter of fact, they have a great history of being leaders. They have all of these things. We're seeing it many, many times in Christianity where spiritual leaders who should know better fall. Or how about... Uh, um, you know, artists uh, who have lots of potential, and we think, you know, they're going to be on the top of the heap, and they fall. Or how about uh, politicians? <laughs> oh, my. <clears throat> we don't want to go there too far, but lots of charisma. We say they're naturals, and yet they fall. Or how about, uh, you know, dieters? <laughs> Now it's getting personal, isn't it? How about dieters? They start off with such great enthusiasm. They're going to they're gonna do all of these things. They're going to lose all this weight. And all of a sudden, they don't. They fail. They fall. Or how about projects that you've encountered, that you wanted to do? You started them off so well. 
I won't go into any of your garages. But I have a feeling, started well, finished poorly, or not finished at all. You see, uh, there's a man who is a, uh, a leader in leadership, and he says this, strong, starting strong is good, finishing strong is epic. That's quite a statement, and very, very true. Now, I think of the evidence in Scripture where you see this. You know, I go to the Old Testament, and the first person that comes to mind that started out extremely strong would be Adam and Eve. Did they start off strong? Hey, perfect place, perfect fellowship with God, and yet what happens? They tripped and fell. They fell over the temptation of a snake. Or, or how about if we go to the New Testament? How about if we go and look at a character like, let's say, Judas? Oh, he had listened to Jesus. He had been a disciple of Jesus. He had seen the miracles of Jesus. He was in the in, inside group with Jesus. And we know what happened there. He fell. He got tripped up by the greed for 30 pieces of silver. You see, history is littered with people who started out well and who finished poorly. And it's not only in our secular world, but it's also in our spiritual world. And we see it, and we're amazed by it. And this morning, I want to look at the, the life of, a, of a King Solomon, King Solomon was uh, a privileged person. He was ruled, however, by an unguarded heart. And the end result was he ended up as a disaster. And that's the principle I want you to understand today. Some of you are here, and you had a great start in the Christian life. Some of you had great exposure to spiritual truth. Some of you were hearing the word of God from the day you were born. Some of you are in that level of hearing truth. But somewhere along in the Christian race, you've tripped up. Because maybe you were having an unguarded heart. And as a result of that, you've fallen. So we want to think about that because all of us have had times in our life where we have tripped up. Let me give you a little bit of background to Solomon's life. I think this would be helpful because we need to understand a person in terms of the context in which he lives. Uh, just giving you the idea, Solomon is the third king of Israel. Remember the first one was Saul? And Saul had a pro heart problem, didn't he? He was not a man after God's own heart. So God was looking for someone that would be like that. And the person, the second king, was David. We see something describing him in 2 Samuel. And now we come to Solomon, the third king. And we find out that he is a man who looks like he's, got, he's just like his dad, a man after God's own heart. But remember, dad had a problem too, didn't they? And dad had a fall. But since he was a man after God's own heart, he wanted to get back to God. And by the way, that's what you find about people who are, who are people of God, after God's own heart. It's not that you will be perfect for life, but it's the fact that you want to be back in fellowship and relationship with God. And so here we see that, and, and he was productive. Remember some of the writings that are attributed to him? And, and it's kind of interesting, you could 
uh, you could find that uh, this is connected to the fact that um, Solomon's writings, he was, uh, when he was a young man, he was rather a romantic. And so you have the Song of Solomon. And then we find out that when he was middle-aged, you have him writing and collecting a number of Proverbs. And I don't know how many of you do this, but for many years, I try to read a proverb, a chapter of Proverbs every day of the month. And so he, he had a lot of insights. He had a lot of wisdom that had come to him. And then we find out that when he was older, he was that regretful king. And that's when he came up with the writings of what we call Ecclesiastes. And, you know, if you really want to get discouraged, do you read Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he's looking back at his life, and he says, this is nothing. This is nothing. So we see this man. And, you know, right now we're, we're going to be focusing particularly upon 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, you basically, uh, I've divided it, this is actually somebody else's chart, but it's divided into two major sections. He's a king with a divided heart. And the result of having a divided heart is that he divides the kingdom. The kingdom that had been established under Saul and David, his father, who had given this over to him. It was a united kingdom, but because of the way he lived with a divided heart, he ended up with a divided kingdom. So that gives you a quick overview of, of Solomon. Now, with that overview of Solomon, let's, let's dig into some aspects because he has a great start. Great start. As a matter of fact, as, as I think about his start, I I see that there's basically nine advantages that he had, and I just touch on them very quickly because of time. First of all, he was aware of his destiny. It's, it's good to know who you are, to have some self-awareness, and he did. It tells us in 1 Kings, in uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, verses 28 and following, we find out that he, was, he had this awareness of his destiny, even though he wasn't the really, I guess you could say, in the spite of his birth order. We find out that Adonijah was the fourth son of David, and he was the eldest of David's offspring. And he wanted to be king. Chapter 1, verse 5, Adonijah, the son of Hagath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So even though he knew somebody else wanted to be king, he knew what God had set him aside for. He knew his destiny. And in fact, the promises that he was given and his people around him were given underscored the fact that this was his destiny to be king. For example, Nathan the prophet, it, it, prophet, it says in chapter 1, verse 13, he's going and he says, Do not, my Lord, O king, swear that your maidservant said, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. How come Adonijah has become king? And see, at this particular time, Nathan is speaking to Bathsheba, and he says, you've got to tell the king what's going on in the kingdom. Because you see, this man who wanted to be king was putting himself in that position. But the destiny of Solomon was to be the king. We find out that actually <clears throat> Bathsheba underscores this in verse 17. She said, when she goes before David, my Lord, you have sworn by the Lord your God 
to your maidservants, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. So it's confirmed by the priest. It's confirmed by his mother. And he knows this is his destiny. Now, if you go back and try to find where this was actually stated, you, you, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. But it's very clear the people knew he had a destiny, and he was aware of that destiny. What an advantage. Isn't it good to know who you are and what you're to be? The second advantage was this. He was anointed by David as king. You see it in verses 34 to 48 in chapter 1. But particularly, uh, we find out that when he is finally declared to be king, everybody starts to acknowledge that he, he's, he's the king, the, the anointed one. As a matter of fact, Adonijah from chapter 1, he recognizes it and he fears. We find that very, very clearly in the, in the scripture because it says that after he was anointed, and uh, it's there in verse 39, the priest took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the horn, and the people said, Long live King Solomon! So he not only was aware of his destiny, but he was anointed to that destiny. And Adonijah is fearful because it says that when that happened, that Adonijah, he was afraid. He was afraid because of what had happened. And his followers were afraid. Verse, those that had been following Adonijah, they're there, uh-oh, this isn't working out well. Adonijah isn't king because he's not the anointed one. The anointed one was Solomon. We also find out all the people started to acknowledge this as well. It tells us that in verses 39 to 40. And an amazing thing there, I think, when we find out that at this particular point, that he is not only aware of who he's to be, but he's actually anointed to be who he was supposed to be. And then we find out that he had the advantage of being admonished by David as to how to live. Chapter 2 tells you this. David talks to him and he says, as, as his life is drawing to a close, he said, David says, I go the way of all the earth, verse 2. Be strong, therefore. Prove yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Do you see the admonition that David gives to him? In other words, he knows what he's supposed to do. He's to be a strong man. The word for strong that's used there means to be hardened, to be courageous, to be firm, to grow firm, to be resolute. And then he adds to that, not only be strong, but prove it. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm, I'm really going to stick to this. Then he says, but prove it. And the Hebrew word means make it come to pass. Make it become. Make it into being. So he's admonished by David to be a strong man. But he's not only to be a strong man, but verses 3 and 4 says, but be also a godly man. And it says there, you, you listen to the, the statutes of God, his commandments, verse 3, his judgments, his testimonies as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper and that all you do and whatever you, wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son takes heed to the way to walk before me in truth with all your heart, with all your soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So it's not just be this man, 
but be a godly man. His duty is to keep the charge of the Lord, verse 3. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes. And then he adds dimensions to this. He says, this isn't only your duty, but the dimensions there in verse 4 is with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, again, it's a heart issue. Solomon, make sure your heart is all in. How many times we're half-hearted in our relationship to God? David is saying, I want to warn you, Solomon, you can't be half-hearted. I had a heart problem for a time, and the result was I sinned. But God, in his grace and his mercy, he brought me back to himself. But he was admonished, Adelaide. What, what a great thing to have people, especially a father, who says, this is how you ought to live, and who demonstrated that way in his own life. And then, as I just said, he had a godly example. It says in chapter 3 and verse 6, you know, something about this. And Solomon says, what is he's talking to the Lord as he's, he's, he's interacting with the Lord. He says, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because, notice this, he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart. What a, what a wonderful thing to have a godly example before us as we live our lives. It's one thing to hear about how to live. It's another thing to see how to live. And in my opinion, and in, in light of what the scripture says, one of the greatest responsibilities of a parent is to be a godly witness to the next generation. I've had people ask me, Bob, you know, you're an old dude. Why are you still working in a college? The answer is this. I want to make an imprint on the next generation. Why do I spend time writing emails and, and getting involved in, in, in texts with my grandchildren? Because I want to make an imprint upon the next generation. Why do we interact with, with people in churches and I go after the young people? It's like sick them to a dog when I see a young person in a church. I'm after them. Why? I want to see the next generation be changed and challenged for Christ. That's important. And here's a godly example. And then, what's, what's the result of all these things, that these advantages? Well, he, he, he was awarded by wisdom from God. He was, he was told he could ask for anything he wanted. In verses 7 through 9, we, talk, we see this. And he says, Lord, he says, you know what I need? And it reflected humility. And it reflected self-awareness. He says, verse 7, I'm just a little child. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to lead. But God knows how to lead through me. So give me godly wisdom to do it. And so he, it was reflected not only in his humility, this wisdom that was awarded to him from God, but it was reflected in what he said I need. He said, you know what I need? I need an understanding heart. That Hebrew word there for understanding means I need to have a heart that hears. I need to have a heart that perceives what is being said. He says, I need to really understand. It's one thing to read the word of God. It's one thing to hear the word of God. I need to understand it. God, give me wisdom so that I can lead this people. 
And God granted it. And he was awarded wisdom from God. What an advantage to not run your life by the wisdom of men, but truly by the wisdom of God. Notice also, as a result of all of this, he's, he's accumulated blessings. He has great wealth. It talks about it in chapter 4. We don't have time to, to look at it, but my goodness, you read chapter 4 and verses 20 through 34, 28, and you see the amount of wealth that he amassed. Unbelievable. And in fact, even today, people refer to Solomon as being the richest of all people. We find out that he not only was accumulated great wealth, but great wisdom. And I, I see this. And it says in verse 29 of chapter 4, and it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all men. Remember, he asked for wisdom, and God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to bless you with great wealth. That reminds me of the verse of Scripture. The verse of Scripture is this. When we pray and we ask God for something, it says that he responds this way. He responds exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He asked for wisdom. God said, you're going to get it, but I want to tell you something else. I'm going to also reward you with great wealth. And so he accumulated blessings. And he acknowledged and he, and he produced, because of all of this, this wisdom and wealth, he accomplished some tremendous building projects. You see it in, in chapter 5 and 6. He builds the temple. And the temple is so spectacular that century later, that when the children of Israel come back from captivity and they come back to, to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, when they were rebuilding that temple, those that were older that had seen Solomon's temple, they wept because it was nothing compared to what Solomon had built. Amazing. Amazing. Great enterprises. He builds the temple. He builds other buildings, chapter 7, and these are personal residences. Man, I'm thinking, all these residences, and now, you know, this is the Reed Standard Version, but, you know, he's got to keep these women apart. You know, he's got to build a lot of residences because he had a lot of wives. He had a lot of problems as a result of that. So he builds other buildings, and, and he furnishes the temple, it says in verse 7. And as you read through the furnishings that are, are designed by Solomon, spectacular. So here he is, another advantage, all of these advantages. And he even has tremendous worship experiences. I read in chapter 8, I, I read about this worship experience as he's bringing the ark uh, to the temple that he has built, this spectacular temple. And he is wise enough to know that the most impressive thing in that temple is not what he's designed, but it's who's there. And he brings the ark in. He brought to the, the ark to the temple. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8 that he assembled all of Israel, the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers, and it says that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. 
And it says in verse 3 that the priests, they took up the ark. Do you think he learned something from his dad? Do you remember what his dad did when he tried to move the ark? He just put it on a cart. He says, let's just get it there. You know, I, you know that's what's important, not how it gets there. I want to tell you, God is not only concerned about outcome, God is also concerned about process. And God had determined the process. And God's process was that the priests would be the ones who would carry the ark. Solomon learned that lesson from his dad, I believe. And that's why I'm seeing him in verse 3. When it's time to move the ark, guess who moves it? The priests. And, and this amazing worship experience is, I, I, I read it and I'm, I'm astounded. There's sacrifices, verse 5. The sacri- I'm, I'm just astounded by the amount of sacrifices. And I'm astounded by the prayers. Solomon stood before, verse 22, the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above all the earth or below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, there is no other God. There's no one like you. And not only that, there's no one like you, And I need to understand that we're to walk before you with all of our hearts. All in. Not distracted hearts, but dedicated hearts to God. Just amazing. And and verse 54, he he then he blesses the people in chapter 8. What a worship experience. And it says in verse 54, And so it was when Solomon had finished praying... All this prayer, and that, by the way, if we had time, what an amazing prayer. When he had finished all the prayer and supplication of the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread out to heaven. And then he stood and he blessed the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, and we see the blessing. In other words, he said, I want God's blessing upon this people. And then they have a feast. They have a party. And what a party it is. And it's described there with with these great things that were done at this tremendous feast. At that time he held a feast and all Israel with him, verse 65. And a great assembly from the entrance to the brook of Egypt before the Lord. Seven days and seven more days. Fourteen days. And you tell me that God doesn't know how to be happy. You know, he's just praising the Lord. What God has done, Solomon's saying. Who God is. He is having an amazing worship experience. But I suppose the thing that really strikes me about all of these advantages, probably the final advantage is the one that impresses me the most. Do you know what? It tells us in Scripture that three times he stood before God. Three times. God appeared to him. You know, there's a, there's a song we used to sing a lot. And uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do you remember that song? Some of you whiteheads understand it. Or as the young people said, you Q-tip heads. Uh, you know, you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, do we look at other things as being more important than God? Is that a danger? You remember the, the three times? Two of them were good. One of them? Mm. First time, chapter 3, verses 5 to 14. And that's when he asked for wisdom. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. When God told him what he was to do, how he was to walk. He was to walk before men, as it says in verses 4 through 7, as your father David walked, notice this phrase, in the integrity of his heart. Do you see a theme running here? It's a heart issue. Because if we have a distracted heart, if we have a distorted heart, there's going to be problems in our lives. And then the last time's a very sad time. We'll see it in a second. But it's in chapter 11. And he stood before God when God was angry with him. His heart was, at that time in verse 9 of chapter 11, his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel. You know, as I look at this first section, and there's only two things we're looking at today, but this first observation of this great start, he had great advantages. He had the potential to be a cultural influencer. As a matter of fact, he did. The world around him took notice that God was doing something special in Israel because of Solomon. In fact, the Queen of Sheba, I think, summarizes it well when you see it in, in chapter 10 and verse 9. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Do you see what happens? A person comes in and says, you know what? This is a special place. And Solomon, one of the reasons is a special place is because God has determined you to be the special person to be influencing this place. His world was influenced by this. In fact, we find out that the kings of the world came to hear his wisdom. That's pretty amazing. That's what he was designed to be. He was designed to be the type of person that would have an influence upon his world. But Solomon was designed to do that, and then something happened. He knew it was needed. He knew it was needed to be done. He knew that when the Lord revealed what, what he was to be and to do in chapter 9, verses 4 through 9. I wonder sometimes if when we know what we're supposed to do, are we squandering the good start that God has given us? You say, good start? Yeah, all of you. You say, well, I come from a rough background. Don't care. That's not where you start. You don't start with a rough background. You start as a new creation in Christ. When you receive him as Savior, that's where you start. And do you know what you get as an advantage? It tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, he has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You have as many blessings as I do. You have as many blessings as your parents do. And the question is, are you going to squander the advantages that God has given to you? I think of what it says in Philippians 6, or chapter 1, verse 6. It says, I am certain that God, who began a good work in you, will continue to work until it is finally finished on the day that Jesus Christ returns. 
Don't squander the advantages that God has given to you. Invest them. Use them to the glory of God. Make sure that the world around you is, is taking notice of Christ, of God, that there's something unique about you. And it's not that you're a nice guy, but do you have a wonderful God? That's essential. But there's a second observation that really concerns me. He had a poor finish. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on a poor finish. I'd rather look at all of those advantages he has that he squandered. Think of the, the poor finish that he had. Now, now, the question I asked myself as I was studying this and was looking at the life of Solomon, why did he finish it that way? And I think that there are a number of things. I think the first one that really struck me, you see it in chapter 10, verses 1 through 29, but I think that he was mesmerized by the things of earth. He was mesmerized by what people had to say about him. It, it says, uh, you remember, I, I quoted this already, the Queen of Sheba, what she said in verses 6 through 9. He says, your wisdom, verse 7, and prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to deal with praise. It's a lot easier to deal with pain. Now, many of you are saying you're nuts, Bob. Oh, no. I know many, 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 many Christians who have fallen because they were mesmerized by the praise of men. But I've known many, many, many Christians who are driven closer to God through the pains in their life. And here we see the praise of people mesmerized by the things of earth. The possessions of the world. I, I think of, it, it says there in verse uh, 23 of chapter 10, so King Solomon surpassed the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God put in his heart. Right now, there's a very tragic things occurring in the Christian experience in the Western world and churches. A lot of men who are leaders of mega ministries. And they crashed and burned because they focused too much on the publicity of who they are. God doesn't care who you are. He cares that who he is is seen through you. That's what's most important. But... You know, all of a sudden, you know, all the clippings and all the great things. And, oh, I got to talk to the president. Well, that's nothing. I got to talk to God this morning. But you see, all of a sudden we get mesmerized by the wrong things. We focus upon those things. The second thing that came to me is I think that Solomon finished poorly because he had misplaced passions. Chapter 11 talk about those misplaced passions, and they arise because he ignored God's command and warning. It tells us in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, Sodomites, the Hittites, and the, all, all the otherites. And from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away from, from their, after their gods. 
And Solomon clung to, the, to these in love. And then it talks about he had 700 wives and princes and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart. So it was that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. How did it get like that? Well, he was ignoring what God had said. God had said, and by the way, he was supposed to read this. Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 17, it says there, about the king, he must not take many wives or this will lead him astray. God says, hey, look, you do this, this is what's going to happen. Solomon says, don't care. I really like that woman. You know, how can this be bad if it feels so good? Quoting a country song. You know, I wish I were just quoting a country song I have had that said to me over and over and over again. Because people say, well, you know, I I know, but it it really felt good. And it wasn't just about issues of adultery or things like that. It was other things of God's word had commanded and just ignored, just blown by. God doesn't give us suggestions. God gives us mandates to live lives that are holy and that are pleasing to the ones that follow in his holiness. How many sad people I've seen over the years, young people who thought for that fleeting moment that this is life, this is life, and all of a sudden they find out that no, it wasn't. That's not life. Life is to be lived in accordance with God and his word. Solomon, it blew past it. And the result? Well, it says at verse 3, did you see that phrase that keeps coming up? This His heart, his heart was turned. His heart was turned. His heart was turned. He was not loyal. You see, again, it's a heart problem. Saul had a heart problem. David had a heart problem, but he got his heart back into rhythm. And he started to beat again with what God wanted. And Solomon has a heart problem. And let me tell you, somebody else who has a heart problem, Bob Reed. And I don't want to follow Saul, and I don't want to follow Solomon. I want to follow David, that when my heart gets out of rhythm, that God gets it back into rhythm again. I don't know where your heart is. But have you been sort of mesmerized by the things of the earth? Have you developed misplaced passions? By the way, what a history he left. Century later, Nehemiah, talking about Solomon, said these words. Was it not because of the marriages like those of Solomon, the king of Israel, that he sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign wives. And you know what Ezra was addressing at that time? The children of Israel had taken foreign wives. He says, you're just like Solomon. He started great. Do you see how he described him with greatness? But he finished poorly. Sad. 
But the thing that comes to all of this, when you put these things together, we see why he finished poorly. He was mesmerized by things of earth. He misplaced passions, and he had misdirected loyalties. Because when your passion is not hard after the heart of God, it's going to take you to passions where you don't want them to be. In fact, it says in verse 4 of uh, verse, uh, chapter 11 of Kings, it says there very, very clearly, Solomon, when he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. By the way, the, the Hebrew word there is interesting because it means spread them out. It, it means to incline him, to influence him. In other words, instead of being a cultural influencer, he was a man influenced by his culture. And his foreign wives influenced it. And it says there, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord. And the word that, that's used there in the Hebrew word, it comes out of a root word for shalom. You've heard of that. It means complete, safe, peaceful, perfect, whole, peace of mind. In other words, he was living a life that did not reflect the peace of God because he was not living to the glory of God. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the case when you're out of fellowship with God? You don't have the peace that surpasses all understanding. You have a peace that's distorted. It's fleeting. It's for the moment. It's not for the eternal. And so what, what, was the, what was the end result of being turned from something? Whenever you turn from something, by the way, friends, you always turn to something. And he did. He turned to the things that God had told him not to turn to. And you see it, he, it's summarizing it in the last part of verse 4, he turned after other gods. And it talks about those gods, Ashtoreth, Malcolm, uh, Chemosh, and general idolatry in verse 8. You know, the sad thing is that these were so distorted. Just, just the one god that was mentioned there, Ashtoreth. This was the vile goddess of sex and fertility. It involved licentious rites. It involved the worship of stars. And Solomon even built a, an area for worship of false gods. Do you know what they called that, that place of worship? It was called the Mount of Corruption. Wow. In other words, this wasn't a amount of ad, adulation, but a amount of corruption because his life was corrupted. You know, mesmerized by the things of earth, misplaced passions, misdirected loyalties. From a great start to a poor finish, potential squandered. And how did it happen? May I suggest that Solomon began to draw upon the wrong wisdom to live his life? He wanted wisdom from God. God said, you got it. In, a, in, in spades. You've got, you've got an abundance of, of wisdom. But the tragedy is, Solomon turned from the wisdom that God gave, and he followed another wisdom. In, in Job, he asks a question. He says, from where does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And he answers, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. I was thinking about this and I 
reflected upon the book of James. James talks about wisdom too. And uh, James says in chapter 3, verses uh, 3 and following, he says, you know, there's wisdom from above and there's wisdom from below. And we're to follow wisdom from above. And he describes it. You can look at it in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Wisdom of the world or wisdom from above? And I ask this question. Are we being careful as to where we're drawing our wisdom? Are you drawing your wisdom from a political party? Are you drawing your wisdom from the polls that are out there, what everybody else is doing? Are you drawing your wisdom from Oprah? Are you drawing your wisdom from other personalities? That's not where you draw your wisdom. That's wisdom from below. Where we're supposed to be drawing our wisdom is from wisdom that comes from above. And where, where did we find that wisdom? It's even recorded for us. It's the Word of God, and it's the Spirit of God illuminating, giving us understanding of what the Word of God has to say. I, uh, I think of a passage of Scripture that I have there in Matthew chapter 7. You can read all of it. Beginning in verse 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and notice this, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash i believe that from the words of jesus we learned that we're to live our life following wisdom from above not wisdom from below one person made a statement very wise statement he said this, beginning well is a momentary thing. Finishing well is a lifelong thing. Sounds like a lot of wisdom, doesn't it? You know who said that? Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias started well. And if you know anything about what's happening right in the last year, Ravi Zacharias finished very poorly. Because for some reason, he didn't follow the wisdom from above. Even though a wise, wise man, he followed wisdom from below. So what should you do if you've gotten tripped up in a race of life? Well, I think you should follow the example that was in that Olympic race. Because you see, when Judah and Amos fell... Jewett helped Amos up, and they jogged to the finish line together, even though the race was essentially over. And they got there. And he said in an interview later, at the end of the day, heroes fall all the time, but legends always get up. And I'd like to suggest today, maybe you have fallen in your Christian life. Well, then I want to give you this advice. 
get up. Come to a merciful and forgiving God. You know, the good news is he puts you back in the race. And you can finish it well. One of my favorite verses of scripture says, they that run the race run all. In spite of getting tripped up from time to time, because you're coming back to a merciful God. How do I know that? First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great news. Solomon, according to the scripture record, there's no evidence that he got back in the race. He ended his life saying, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. I want to remind you that a privileged life ruled by an unguarded heart that follows the wisdom of the world and the culture of the world around them is likely to be a disaster. So here's, here's the summation in a small ver- sentence. Live wisely. Stay in the race. Glorify God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and your word is truth. And Lord, you have given us a a heartbreaking account of a life that had so many advantages and squandered them. Help us not to be that foolish. Help us to build upon the solid rock. The rock is the word of God. The rock is Jesus Christ. Let us glorify you with our lives. And we pray these things in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.